Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Oh, Dr. Jana, how I missed your face. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has been two months. It has been, but the science of sex is back for a new season. Woohoo. Welcome back to the mainland. I, to the Do mainland. I, say that? I don't know. Well, I know you've been I mean, tra- traveling to the a continent. Lot. Okay. Yes, I was in Europe all all summer for for the last two months. It's funny though. I I was getting messages from people like, "What happened to my favorite podcast?" Or like, "Why did you guys stop recording?" No way. Yeah, I was like, "Don't worry, don't worry." Was that your sister? Or was that like a real? It was not my sister. Oh, okay, that's good that people are, yeah. are actually excited about mm-hmm. the science sex and it's back. And it is back. I was like, "Yes, don't worry about it. We will be back. We just needed a little break. Yeah, we needed a couple of months off." And I've been following you on Instagram and Uh seeing how you've been globetrotting and everything like that. (laughs) I've only been Europe-trotting. Europe-trotting? Yes. Well, I did notice a lot of times you were with a lot of handsome fellas. No, that's not true. There were no handsome fellas on my Instagram. (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm trying to be nosy. Did you run into any (laughs) Uh, handsome fellas along the way? I may have run into quite a few handsome fellas. There are a lot of of beautiful people out there in the world. And I noticed that, so I spent... I mean, I, I went to like seven or eight different countries, but one place I spent a lot of time in, which is pretty typical of my summers, is Berlin. Oh. I love Berlin, right? Okay. And I, I make it a point to spend a couple of weeks at least every summer there. And Berlin has so many hot people. It's insane. Really? Yes. Okay, so this is the Science of Sex podcast. Uh-huh. So people, if they're new to the podcast, we will get into the scientific part of the sex, but we also <laughs> get into the fun part of it. So wait, the science is not fun. Well, okay, the science part is. Well, I don't know. I find it fun. It's fun. Well, I would I would say more. Uh, uh, I would say mainstream fun <laughs> is talking about you know how the, uh, you know what we do in our lives and such. So uh-huh. of these German men who are straight out of Central Casting, uh, <laughs> you know, with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the buff bodies, did you have any interactions uh-huh. with anyone? Meet any good-looking? Fellas? No, I never talked to anyone. I just observed from a distance. My ass. Yeah, no, you did not. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't listened to the podcast before if you're new to the science of sex you'll soon learn that joe is the kind of the long-term monogamous relationship kind of guy who's been yeah. uh, for who's been in, in the same long-term monogamous relationship for a long time and happy what is it, throw 20, in the word happy 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 in a happy yeah long-term monogamous relationship for over 20 years yes, right correct and dr jana is you want to do the honors? The opposite. <laughs> you, we are the yin and yang. So you are the, the proponent of a casual sex. You got a PhD proponent? in it. I'm well, not a proponent. <laughs> I know. You have to stop saying that. I know. But you're. I was going to say you. you okay. Carry try, the, try again. You, try again. Ca- you carry the torch for casual sex. What does that even mean? Like you. You. <laughs> what are you talking about? You like to talk about the positives of casual sex for, yes because for some people there are positives it, it's not for everybody yep. so it's something that I've always you champion casual sex for those who are the right people for yeah. casual sex but that's very different from championing casual <laughs> sex because the way you, you put it it sounds like I think everybody should be doing it all the time and that's not what I've no. said at, at any point in my no, life uh, it's that. not for everybody mm-hmm. nothing sexual ever is mm-hmm. just like long term monogamy isn't for everyone yeah. either Lots of casual sex or any amount of casual sex isn't for everybody right. either. But there are people like myself who do like casual sex. Yeah. Yes. And there's a phrase we use on the show from time to time called me search, which is uh-huh. people uh, who, who we talk about with these studies who have sort of a, I guess, a close connection or bond with their subject matter. <laughs> and you have a very close <laughs> connection to casual sex, which you got your PhD in. Is that, that correct? That is so correct. Yeah. Yes. Definitely my research has been, to some extent, me search. Yes. So, so like I said, we got the yin and yang. We got the happy mm-hmm. monogamous fellow. We got the happy... Non-monogamous. Non-monogamous gal. Gal, yes. Well, if you want to say yes. that, I don't know if I could call you a gal. I don't know what's appropriate anymore. I think gal is Gal's fine. Yeah. Okay, so... I've had a pretty demure summer mm-hmm. and just didn't do much. But okay. we, we did have, I don't know, maybe if you could help me out, because since you are a bit of a relationship <laughs> mm-hmm. expert and you do this, what are your thoughts, and this is serious, get that smile off <laughs> <Okay>. your face. <laughs> Air conditioning. Air conditioning? Yeah. It's a good thing to have when it's <laughs> hot outside. I agree. I fully support air conditioning to some extent. Right. So, uh, But I do think that in the U.S., yeah. 
the AC is set at way too low of a temperature in general. I agree. Listen, you're already on my side. Oh, oh, you're already on board on Team Joe. So my wife and I have been uh-huh. fighting all summer, and we do every <laughs> summer, about how low the air conditioner must go. So usually the guy wants it lower, so right. colder, and yes. the woman likes it a little warmer. Right. So, but this m- much like, like it's you, the opposite. Yeah, much like Dr. John and Joe are the are the yin and yang of the science of sex. <laughs> my wife and I are the yin and yang when it comes to air conditioning. So I prefer it a little warmer. Although when I say the word warmer, mm-hmm. I say a uh, more comfortable. Okay, okay, which is what? So when we go to bed at night, mm-hmm. you know, the bedroom as we yes, talk, the boudoir yes. to, to sleep, not yes, to to sleep, not oh, to whatever. Get busy. Okay, yeah, whatever. To get busy. Okay. She sets it air conditioning to 62 degrees. 62. Damn, that's, that's chilly. That's, and and what's your preferred temperature? 70. 70. So, okay, 70 is warm though. It's yeah, but it se- is warm. But it's, I'm more of a 65 6 kind of gal. All right. Well, geez, all right. So maybe you can compromise the two of you and set it at 65 and a half. Okay. So I'm getting relationship <laughs> advice from Dr. Jana about air conditioning. I mean, if that's what your summer was yeah. about, and if that is a problem that you've had over okay. and over again for 20 yeah. plus summers, yeah. I think you two should solve this. Okay. So 65.6, is that what you're I mean, that's an option, or you okay. can try 62 some nights and 60 and 70 other nights, but I think kind of, you know, meeting in the middle might be a better solution a more sustainable solution. Wow. Dr. Jana, fixing relationships one day at a time. I can't help it. <laughs> like to solve problems. That's my job in life is problem solving. So my issue that is, is pretty simple that you've able to fix, but I will say you have a bit of a glow about you. Oh, do I? And I'm not saying like a pregnancy glow or anything like that. I Definitely no pregnancy glow. Pre- so. Although, yeah. although Uh-oh. funny you should mention, I think part of the glow that you're seeing maybe has has to do with the fact that I was holding and playing with the baby for a few days. My oh. sister's baby, not mine. Okay. My, and everybody said that it looked good on me. Ooh. Although, Mama Jana. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure it looks it would look good on me. Okay. <clears throat> and we probably have talked about this in, in, on the podcast in the past that I've never really wanted kids. Mm-hmm. Like kids is not something that... You don't have that mom gene. No, no. Not, not as much as many other women or sure. people do. And I had a very unusual experience this summer where for the first time in my life, I've met somebody. Whoa. In fact, Whoa, and you can be monogamous? Oh, no. All right, there goes that. No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you took me for a ride there. I'm like, oh my God, Dr. Shana's coming over to my side? What happened? No, come on, just... Okay. Yeah, babies and monogamy are not necessarily the same thing. True, true, true. Sorry. Right? Sorry. Okay. So for the first time in my life, I met two somebodies. Whoa. And I met them at the same time because they're like best friends. I kind of fell in love with both of them. Well, hold on, hold on. Fell in love or fell in lust? Well, both. I mean, it started with lust, okay. obviously, but then there was so much, not just physical attraction, which is plenty for mm. me to feel lust, but then there was also a great intellectual connection. You know, we spent very intense 48 hours together after we had all spent uh, five days at this festival that mm. I go to in, in Poland. And we had kind of that shared experience for the previous five wow. days, right? And then we spent two days in Berlin uh, together in a very kind of intense sort of um, setting. And over those 48 hours, it became very clear to me that we have a strong intellectual connection and we have a lot of compatibility in terms of our personalities or how we want to live our lives or the kinds of things that we value and not value and care about and not care about. And so I think for the first time in my life, I had this moment of like temporary love that has all the elements that are are important, at least for me. And I think for many other people that have when you are falling in love. Mm. So the physical attraction, the the passion, uh, great sex, the intellectual connection, and then all of these other points of compatibility in terms of personality, lifestyles, and values. Mm. And it was a moment where I was like, hmm, I think these people, or people like them, type of you people, know, these it. type of people, uh, would be the kinds of people that I might actually would like to have a child with. Or Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I know. In fact, if I can get both of them at the same time, Jeez. I would have a baby with each of them, and we Wait, could live on, happily down. ever after. You went from zero babies to two babies <laughs> in one visit? That's crazy. I, it was just perfect. Like they, they were both, and 
I mean, imagine it. It would be it would be the perfect scenario for Jana. Two partners, husbands, whatever you want to call them, who, who are really good friends, who get along really well, who like each other, have been friends for a long time. And then we all kind of have similar personalities and lifestyles mm. and values. And we would all want to raise those those babies in a very similar way. I would totally take a break from my insane life for however many years that like, what is it like two, two per baby, yeah, three per baby, 18 maybe years. 18 no, years. No, it's not 18 years. 18 no, years. Come, I mean, yes, <laughs> your life changes, but like your life really, really, really changes uh, for the first like two or three years. Wow. And that's just one thing I've never heard. I mean, obviously the baby thing, but mm. it almost seems like you're describing a polyamorous type of relationship, which you've never really talked about before. You obviously open relationships. It's mm-hmm. a, a version of it. Mm-hmm. But so you could see yourself living in a house with two guys, two kids. Yeah. And, and other partners, right? Like, it would still be sure. open. Like they could have other partners, casual. But the uh, fact that they uh, share in the same place with you, because that's mm-hmm. always been a thing where you don't like yeah, anyone yeah. in your space. I, I mean, as long as we have a, <laughs> that's not true. It is partially true. <laughs> I do like my space, but if we had a large enough house, we don't have to live in a two-bedroom apartment, you know, yeah. where we all sleep together every night and the two babies share a room, right? Yeah. No, hopefully would would be. I mean, this is the fantasy, right? Yeah. This is the ideal genre way of it is now which it never was up until this summer you know there have been times in my life where i've had this fleeting thought fleeting fantasy of i think i'd like to have two boyfriends or two husbands or whatever but i've never i've never really felt it i've i'd never met two people who would make a good compatible types of partners for me and who could not like not even going there who could uh, be good friends and and good what's called metamors right to one another and so it had never been a real well, possibility right. even right and for the first time ever in my life i felt like even though these two these particular individuals are probably not the ones yeah but i felt like it's possible like these kinds of people that would make good partners to jana in this ideal kind of fantasy s- scenario way they exist they're out there and who knows maybe this could come true. So, wow. So yeah, that happened to me on this trip. It's been it's been quite the trip, I gotta say. It's, I mean, yeah, it's been a fun summer, but all my summers are fun. This was more than fun. Yeah, you beyond fun. You texted me the. I, I remember the the line in one of the texts you sent me was something like life changing, mm-hmm. which I was like. I don't know if you're being overdramatic or what was <laughs> <laughs> what was going on, but that's that you described a pretty much a life changing experience. Didn't I? This wow. sounds pretty life changing, right? What you know about me based on yeah. the interactions we've had over the last year or so, this right? This yeah. this qualifies, yeah. right? Even people listening over whatever are thirty seven episodes, this yeah. is gonna be this is like a mind blowing <laughs> twist that came around thirty eight episodes in. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I did not see this coming, I gotta say. And it's kinda of funny because today our guest has something to do with more I guess serious relationships and not just that's you know, true. Nothing too I mean, obviously casual sex could come into play, but our guest today has a lot to do with, you know, keeping a relationship strong in those mm-hmm. bonds, right? Yes, indeed. Oh, how perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I made sure that my summer experiences <laughs> were a good match for our first guest of the season. Right. So it's <laughs> SNM. No, no, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> yeah. So today we have Dr. Amy Muse from York University in Canada, who's going to talk to us about communal sexual motivation or communal sexual strength. And I know that that sounds like, huh? What? It, it, yeah. To you yes. as well as our listeners mm-hmm. and i promise it will all make sense in a minute all right well before we get amy on the uh, skype we should do a couple <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, we talk to her on the skype. skype um a couple of housekeeping uh, things we have a new member of the science sex podcast we do yeah so tell tell our friends <laughs> listening who so we have up until this season and uh, for the first season uh my assistant Corey Corey bush was kind of doing everything that was dr jana related mm-hmm. so we decided that we need another person who's going to take care of all the podcast related production and and newsletters and blog posts and social media shares and all that so we have kieran who's coming on board for this season to help run all of that and uh, who is this Karen? Because I, I was not involved in the hiring process. It would have been nice, but uh, t- tell you, me. You were too busy yeah, uh, d- doing arguing nothing. about the air conditioner. Right, sure. <laughs> so what is, does Kieran have the, the background to? <laughs> Kieran actually is one of my former students. She oh. was in one of my NYU uh, courses. I think she was in the casual sex, the psychology of casual sex 
class that I taught last year. Okay. And yeah, I think she's she's going to be great. I think you two will get along. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I can get along with you, I get along with anybody, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Obviously. All right. So uh, <laughs> let's uh, connect to Skype and let's get Amy Muse on the line. So Joe, if someone were to say, you have such high communal sexual strength, what would that mean to you? I like to have sex with communities. <laughs> I don't know. I, really? I, 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 really? I, got, I got communal and then sex. Yeah. No? Communal sexual strength or communal sexual motivation. I have sex with a lot of towns, a lot of... I, very motivated to have sex with communities. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> you are definitely wrong. Okay. And it's okay. I don't, I don't blame you. It is somewhat of a new term. Oh, okay. And it's not maybe immediately kind of descriptive of what it's uh, meant to stand for. Oh, so you were setting me up to fail. I, I like that. I was totally setting you up Thank to fail. Thank you very much, Dr. Jana. Communal sexual strength or motivation is about to what extent people are attuned to or interested in meeting their partner's sexual needs, like pleasing their partners, okay. making sure that their partners are sexually satisfied, whatever that means to them. Okay. Our guest today and her colleagues have taken this concept and done a bunch of different studies to really look at what it is and what it's uh, related to and how it can help relationships. And it seems like it has some potential. So I'm um, safe to assume our guest has some sort of credentials for this? Yeah, Dr. Amy Muse is an assistant professor and director of the Sexual Health and Relationships Lab at York University. Her research focuses on how couples can keep the spark alive over time and looking at the psychological and interpersonal factors that can help couples maintain desire and passion over time, have more fulfilling sex lives and relationships, and successfully navigate conflict and transitional periods in a relationship like parenthood and, and and such. Dr. Muse's research informs how couples can thrive in their relationships, which has broad implications for overall health and well-being. And she also has written for popular media and is active on social media. So I highly encourage people finding Dr. Amy Muse beyond the Science of Sex podcast. Oh, she sounds legit. Okay, cool. Yes, yes, she is. Dr. Amy Muse, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me. So I kind of gave people a little bit of, of a definition of what we're going to talk about today and what the communal sexual motivation thing is, but I think you should probably define it because you're going to do a better job. Yeah, plus she's on the show for that. She is oh. on the show for that. So so before I even ask you how you ended up studying that, which is usually the first question, but that's because people nor normally know what it is that we're talking about, and now we're introducing this brand new concept that people are like, huh, what? So tell us. Sexual communal strength or sexual communal motivation is basically just being motivated to be responsive to a partner's sexual needs. So you care about what your partner is interested in and you're sort of motivated to meet their needs or meet their interests. And I actually sometimes link this to a term that Dan Savage uses, which is GGG. So he'll often tell people on his podcast about being a, a GGG sex partner. So being someone who's good giving and game. And so this idea of sexual communal strength really ties into this giving and game part. Mm. So the idea is that, yeah, you're, you, you try to understand what your partner is interested in. You're motivated to meet those needs, but of course, within reason. So you want to still be true to what your own needs are, um, but you have this motivation to also be responsive to your partner. Okay, so responsiveness to partner's sexual needs, caring about kind of pleasing them and making sure their needs are met within reason. Exactly. How is is different from just being sort of a nice person, altruistic or versus selfish, I guess? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's two things about that. So it is linked to these ideas, I guess, of altruism, like it's really linked to these ideas of being communal, which is similar. So that's sort of just what you're talking about, this general motivation to be responsive. Um, so there's two things, though. There is, I think, a somewhat selfish aspect to this. If a person's high in, in communal strength or sexual communal strength, they're motivated to meet their partner's needs, but they also expect that kind of responsiveness in return. Mm. They just don't give to their partner in order to get something specific in return. So we usually think of that as more of like an exchange. So I'll do something sexual for you if you sort of do the equivalent thing back to me. Um, and communal strength isn't really like that. It's really more about trying to understand what are your partner's specific needs and how can you facilitate meeting those needs as opposed to thinking about what you're getting in return 
But what you do expect in return is that same level of responsiveness. So you do want to have a partner that's also going to be motivated to understand your needs and help you fulfill those. Um, and also in terms of this idea of general niceness, in all of the results that we'll sort of talk about today about the links of sexual communal strength, I typically also see if these things come out above and beyond just being a generally communal or nice or agreeable person. Mm. And we do find this. So what this always suggests to me is that there is something particular about being communal within the domain of sexuality mm. that has benefits for people's relationships above and beyond just being like generally communal or responsive in other domains. Right. So you could be generally communal and want to be nice to your partner. But if you're not sexually communal, then that might still affect negatively your your relationship or sexual satisfaction specifically and stuff like that? Yeah, I think that's right. So even if I'm, you know, there there is a link, obviously, between how communal people generally are and how specifically communal they are sexually. Mm. But because we see that um, sexual communal strength is impacting relationship satisfaction, desire, above and beyond any of the impacts of just general communal strength, it does seem like there's at least something additional to be gained by being communal specifically within the sexual domain. Okay. And are you being literal in this communal exchange? Like, are you saying, hey, I would like this. And if you well, give you me like, that. Would you like a blowjob? Would yeah. you like a blowjob? What? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Like, one thing I always say when people ask about, you know, what could promote communal yeah. strength, sexual communal strength in a relationship, I do always say, well, it can be difficult to meet a partner's sexual needs if you don't know what they are. So I do think there is an element of, yeah, you've got to be able to communicate what you want, ask what your partner wants. So I think there is an aspect to this as explicit. Um, I mean, there might be other things just like with most of our sexual encounters that are not spoken verbally. So you might just, you know, as you get familiar with a partner, you might sort of understand how they act when they're into something or not into something. And it might just be about sort of checking in about whether you're accurate in those assessments. But I do think some of it is is made explicit. Mm. It sounds very technical and takes away some of the spontaneity of of the lovemaking if you guys talk it like plan it out like an right. ikea like you're building something from ikea you have you have, you have right, you know, something right. like that how do you avoid that sort of vacuum type setting that you've created there well i mean a lot of this i've studied in couples who are in longer term relationships so i'm talking about this with a partner that you're engaging in sex with and doing all sorts of things you're in an ongoing relationship with. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe there's points in the relationship when you're being open about what your needs are, but it might not be something that you sort of talk about and check in with at every single sexual <laughs> right. encounter. Right. So you might just know from what your partner said in the past, what types of things they enjoy. And so you're just sure to, you know, incorporate that into your sexual repertoire um, and, you know, hopefully they understand the things that you're sort of into. And maybe if a new thing arises, it's something that you talk about either during sex or not. So I don't think that this often looks like, you know, very constant frequent checking Checklist. in during every encounter. I <laughs> yeah. think it might be more of these general ongoing conversations about what you're sort of into, what you'd like to try, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, that kind of thing. Right. And and this sexual communal strength or motivation is specifically about just being in attuned to right. those needs or whatever your partner might have versus not being very attuned or not caring very much or not being very responsive to whatever it is that they need. Now, exactly. And I think often when we're in a sexual encounter, I mean, people might be, you know, not always being authentic for various reasons, but often when we're with a partner, there are other cues about what they might be into and what they might not be into. And I think a communal person is sort of going to be a you know, very attuned to that because they really want to understand what is my partner into it and what are they sort of less interested right, in. Right, right. Now, you've done work on a lot of different aspects of sexuality, especially sexuality in these long-term relationships. Uh, how, how did this come about? How did you end up studying communal sexual strength? I literally had not seen this concept uh, until you and Emily and Pet started looking at this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we really adapted it from the broader relationship literature. So there's been, you know, since kind of the 1970s and early 80s, there's been work on generally being communal as a partner in a relationship. Um, and so we sort of more recently adapted those ideas about being a communal partner specifically to sexuality, um, because we know that being a communal partner had these sort of broader benefits in people's other relationships, including their romantic relationships. And we wanted to see if 
there'd also be benefits to being communal specifically around sexuality in a relationship. Um, so that's how this specific question came about. In terms of sexuality in long-term relationships, I've really been interested in this idea that there's kind of this paradox where, you know, early in relationships, often sexual desire is quite high. And it's often one of the things that sort of draws us to another person and makes us want to form an ongoing relationship with them, right. um, you know, over time. But then as we sort of get more comfortable with them and we develop that relationship, sexual desire is one of the things that declines over time. And so it seems like it can be challenging to have, you know, a comfortable, stable, ongoing relationship that also includes some desire and passion. Mm -hmm. So I've been really interested in trying to understand aspects of these long-term relationships that are satisfying that also sort of influence having a satisfying sex life and fueling high desire. Right. And this this concept is kind of a part of that that general area of research or yeah it is it is so we do find that and the interesting thing that we find is being a communal sexual partner isn't just important for the partner I mean you could easily imagine how it could be good to be with a partner who's communal because you know they care about your needs they're motivated to be responsive but we also find a lot of benefits for the self of being communal so people who are themselves more communal sexual partners they maintain higher desire over time, and they also feel more satisfied um, with the relationship. And we also see that these couples who are communal are better able to navigate sexual challenges that come up. So like when people have kids and their sex life might change because of that, or when they're coping with like some kind of sexual dysfunction or sexual issue, communal people seem to be able to maintain higher levels of satisfaction in these situations as well. Um, so it does seem to bode well for both partners. Amy, out of curiosity, like you talk about long-term relationships. At what point are you able to become communal and know all this? Is there is there a timetable to any of that? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, so we do think of it as partly an individual difference. So I think people are coming in with a certain, coming into a relationship with a certain level of sexual communal strength. Um, and this could change over time. So it could be like other things where you know, if I'm high in sexual communal strength, I should want my partner to also be somewhat high. So this may change over time. If I'm with a less communal person, um, you know, maybe they'll become more communal over time. Maybe I'll become less communal or, you know, maybe we'll end the relationship because mm -hmm. it might not be uh, compatible. So I do think people are coming in with a certain level and they can be communal right from the start. But what I've been finding is that it's not so much that people necessarily on average increase or decrease in sexual motivation, but it does tend to become more important in longer term relationships. And I think mm, the reason right. why is because in newer relationships, desire is often already high and partners, you know, typically have sex more frequently. So they might be a little bit more in tune with each other just because of that. So I think where sexual communal strength really starts to matter is when desire might be declining a little bit or when couples might be facing some kind of issue right. because then it's most important to understand your partner's needs when they might be somewhat different from your own. So I don't necessarily find differences in levels of sexual communal strength, but I do find that some of our effects are stronger with couples in longer-term relationships. That makes sense, yeah, because in the beginning, yeah. you both kind of have pretty high desire. Yeah. You all want to have sex all, all <laughs> the time and, and then yeah. only later because people's desires decrease we all decrease desire to some extent for a long-term partner but that decrease might happen at different rates and yeah and exactly different ways and so that's when it really becomes more important yeah now usually i read all these studies cover to cover <laughs> john why are you laughing is, is there i don't know why she's laughing amy is there a level just like i listen to all our podcasts <laughs> yeah is there a level of this uh communal strength is there, i mean do you guys have like a graph where it's like a one to ten kind of strength in terms of how high the, the strength is in a relationship? That's a good question. So we do measure it like on a five point scale and we tend to measure it for each partner. So one partner's level of sexual communal strength and the other partner's level. Um, and so it's usually scored like zero to four. And we tend to see means like just, just above like sort of the midpoint of the scale. But we don't have like a specific cutoff where it's like, oh, this is high and this is low. It's sort of like what we've been finding so far is just you know, as you are higher in sexual communal strength, you tend to experience more desire, more satisfaction. So, but people are basically all over that scale. So people range from super low communal strength to super high communal strength, like uh, whatever, extroversion, you know, like a personality yeah. trait. That's how you're treating this, right? From people being 
you know, all the way from low extroversion to high extroversion, this is kind of the same thing? That's mostly how we've been treating it. I think about it kind of as a relationship variable because the questions are specifically about the partner. So Mm -hmm. it's, I think of it as like a relational difference as opposed to an individual difference, but it's very similar to what you're talking about. We have also though looked at this in daily studies. So in some of our studies, we've been able to measure this every day. So how motivated you were to meet your partner's needs on a particular day. Mm. And we do find some sort of daily or within person fluctuation. So even if a person is generally high in sexual communal strength or generally low, there there's some variability day to day. So some people might on one day be more motivated and on another day be less. And we do find a lot of those same associations. So on days when people are more motivated to meet their partner's needs, we see benefits for the sex life and relationship. Okay, so what do we do with all those people who are low in communal sexual strength? Should we not date them? Should, we, <laughs> should, should, should people give them a little, a little scale before they start dating and be like, oh, you're one or a zero. Sorry, deal breaker. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think that, yeah, probably less communal people are less desirable sexual partners, but it might also depend on what it means to be low for that particular person. So one of the things that we could contrast sexual communal strength with is being exchange oriented. So that what I sort of talked about closer to the beginning, you know, I'll do something sexual for you if you sort of do a very similar thing for me in return. Mm -hmm. Your focus is really on keeping things even, keeping things equitable. Mm -hmm. And those people might be low in sexual communal strength, but they might be sort of high in exchange. And it's possible that if both partners are highly exchange oriented, that could work. Um, They might be able to work out something. Mm. Um, So I haven't been able to look at that. I'd really love to do a study where we follow people. I'm hoping to do this in the next year, where we follow people who are sort of in newer-ish relationships, like within the first year or so, Mm -hmm. and follow them over time. So we can sort of follow them over this period where desire often declines. And we can see the trajectory of communal strength and what it sort of means like if one partner is high does the other for the couples that stay together is the partner that you know comes up to join them in their high sexual communal Mm -hmm. strength did those couples fare best or what happens when there's a discrepancy so I don't have all the answers to those questions but I do think um you know people benefit from having partners who are high in sexual communal strength but it also depends on what low might mean. And if partners are matched up on that, it, th- that could still be okay. Right. You could still have a low communal strength and high sex drives, and you could be having sex for kind of these relatively selfish reasons, right. but that sex could still be good. Sex, right? No, it doesn't or, have to well, be shitty. Yeah. I mean, if you're well-matched in True. terms of what you like, you just happen to be well-matched in what you like and how often you like to to have sex, then you could be totally selfish in this way, low communal strength, but still have a satisfying sex life. Or yeah, as you were saying, if if you're exchange oriented, uh, that might still be pretty satisfying. Uh, Yeah. And what I I worry about is that could be okay initially, like what you're saying. If Mm. partners have the same interests, then communal strength probably is much less important because if you could just be meeting your own needs, but that's just sort of inadvertently meeting your partners as well. But if it comes a time in the relationship where those needs change, which often occurs, or couples face some kind of sexual issue, that's when I think that these other perspectives are going to make it more challenging for couples to navigate those situations. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a a great point. So can people then increase their... Uh, sexual communal strength you know if if this is sort of a personality trait ish like mm-hmm. thing right it might be relatively stable like other personality traits well yeah. first first let me ask you who are these people why do some people end up with lower sexual communal strength and are, are there any differences in you know whatever you've looked at between those who have lot high and low uh, communal strength and then do you think this is something that people can increase That's a really good question. So it is linked in a small way to some personality traits, things like how agreeable you are. So I do think that people have this general sort of other person orientation, like some people are just more motivated to meet the needs of other people that they're in important relationships with. Mm -hmm. And so I think that partially your communal strength would come from, you know, this general disposition. But we do see day to day variability on this. And we have been able to move this around a little bit. So in some studies that have mostly been hypothetical, but we've been able to 
ask people to take their partner's perspective or Mm. think about things from their partner's perspective in a hypothetical situation. And when we do that, at least temporarily, they are more motivated to meet the needs of their partner. So I do think there is like a perspective taking component. That's why I always talk about like, it's difficult to meet a partner's sexual needs if you don't know what they are. So I think making sure that you can communicate that with their partner is one way of at least making the partner aware of those needs. And then ideally, they'd be motivated to meet them. So I do think some of this is coming from your more general disposition, but we do seem to be able to move it around a little bit. And this is actually one of the things that I continue to work on. So I don't have the answer yet, but one of the things we've been trying to do is just even telling people about the benefits of being a communal sexual partner. And again, we always do this in the context of people who are in an ongoing relationship. So they do have a partner that they, you know, ideally feel comfortable with and, and, and can express themselves with. So by telling these types of people about the benefits of sexual communal strength, can this actually lead to improvements mm. in their sex life and relationship? So we're sort of collecting that data right now, and hopefully we'll have some indication about the extent to which we can not only move this around, but sort of sustain any type of change in the relationship over time. Right. Yeah, I can totally see how that, even just letting people know about these things, might have a positive effect. And I can totally see how this could be used in couples therapy oh, totally. and sex therapy, right, to work with, with people by increasing their their understanding and, and care, attentiveness to their partner's needs to both have and not have sex, depending on which way things things go. But yeah, it seems like it could be super useful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of our long-term goals. I've been working with a group of clinical psychologists and that's, we've started to look at this in clinical samples. So couples who are coping with a sexual dysfunction Mm. and that would be, and we're finding benefits of this approach in those samples as well. So that would be one of our long-term goals to see if we could sort of incorporate this in therapy and then if it could have sort of sustained change for couples who are coping with these more challenging issues. Right. Yeah, you've done some of these studies in, as you said, couples coping with some sexual dysfunctions. I, I saw one study on uh, couples with where the woman is struggling with vulvodynia. Uh, you looked right. at new parents. You've That's looked right. at, obviously, general population sa- samples. Uh, what are some of these these findings or why, why are these samples or how are these samples different from general population ones and what can they tell us? Yeah, I've been interested in these samples because a lot of the community samples that I study, they're relatively happy on average. So I'm seeing these differences in satisfaction, but everybody's pretty high. I mean, they're participating in a study about their sex life and relationships. So I've been interested in what these kinds of constructs mean for couples who are actually coping with a change in their sexual relationship or something that's presenting some challenges. And so a couple of the interesting things that have come out of these populations are, like I mentioned briefly before, with the new parent couples, we looked at this idea of being motivated to be understanding when a partner's not in the mood. Mm. And we thought that this would be particularly important when a couple's had a new baby, because a lot of, you know, there's body, there's changes to the woman's body, there's fatigue, there's changes to sort of your roles in the relationship. So it's a time when a lot of things in the relationship are changing. And we actually found in that situation, there was benefits to being a sexually communal partner. But above and beyond that, it was really important for partners, especially for the new fathers, to be understanding about their partner's need not to engage in sex. Mm -hmm. So they were able to sustain relationship and sexual satisfaction. So it seemed like being able to understand that there was sexual changes, at least for this specific period of time, even though it wasn't about actually meeting a partner's sexual needs and having sex, that this was really important for couples sort of just sustaining that connection and that satisfaction through like a period that we know can be challenging. Um, So that was important to be able to look at sort of that reverse idea about this important component of, well, it's not just always like couples aren't always going to be able to meet their partner's needs by having sex. Sometimes this might be, Hey, okay, I get it. Like you're not in the mood, things are changing and that that can be okay as well. And then the other piece with the clinical sample is one thing that we get worried about in terms of like talking about these ideas is we don't want to imply that people should always do whatever their partner wants to do sexually. Like certainly people should have their own boundaries and should be understanding of what their own needs are. And this was particularly salient to me when thinking about a clinical population. So thinking about a woman who's experiencing sexual pain or a woman who has clinically low levels of sexual desire 
we certainly don't want to send the message that, well, you should just have sex with your partner mm-hmm. whenever they want, because that's not really what being communal is. So in those studies, we were able to look at this other idea, which we called unmitigated sexual communion. And essentially, this is like extreme communal motivation. So being motivated to meet a partner's needs at the expense of your own needs or like to the neglect of your own needs. Mm. And we find that if people take this too far and meet their partner's needs and really don't have any focus on their own, that they actually don't reap those same benefits and they can often report more negative consequences. So less Mm. satisfaction, more sexual distress. So there is a limit to, um, you know, being communal in the sexual relationship. And what was particularly interesting about those studies is that this idea of being like an unmitigated communal partner, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being totally focused on a partner's sexual needs. So you think the partner might benefit from that, but they actually don't. Those partners felt less satisfied And they even felt like more depressed and more distressed than people who just had like a communal partner and they were still sort of owning their own needs as well. Interesting. I can totally see why the extreme communal partners themselves are not doing as well. But what do you think explains their partners not doing as well? Is there some like pressure that they're feeling? Yeah, I think it's partly that. I think it's also because... If you're an unmitigated person, so you're not really taking any sort of ownership or you're you're basically neglecting your own needs, you often have trouble accepting support and and in some ways like sharing your authentic feelings and connecting with people that way. Hmm. So I think that's more of what's going on. These are our our women or partners who have a sexual dysfunction and their partners probably want to make sure that they can, you know, have a sex life that's going to be okay or fulfilling to the partner who's coping with this dysfunction but if they're unmitigated they might feel like the partner won't really accept any of their efforts to meet their needs Mm. or make sure that you know they get their desires met and that might be why they end up feeling less satisfied that's sort of one idea one possibility okay so there are limits to sexual communal motivation there's a there's like a golden kind of ratio or yeah. whatever go- magic kind number of a, a magic number some some golden middle yeah. now we, we've been mentioning benefits benefits and i know that you, we've mentioned them kind of throughout can we just list all these benefits that you've found are correlated with a uh, higher communal sexual strength yeah so generally we started out looking at desire and so we did find that a person's own sexual communal strength was associated with them feeling higher sexual desire for their partner and being able to maintain higher desire over time. Mm -hmm. We also typically find that both partners feel more satisfied in the relationship, more committed to the relationship, and more satisfied with their sex lives. Mm -hmm. And we find this like even on days when couples are, you know, experiencing some desire discrepancies, and even among couples who are either transitioning to parenthood or coping with some kind of a sexual issue. And then in some of these populations, we've also seen that sexual communal strength um, can be linked to like lower sexual distress, lower levels of depression, and things like that that are more clinical outcomes. So it seems like sexual communal strength can have these benefits for relationships, and it can also negate some of these negatives that might occur when couples are coping with more serious sexual issues. Damn, that's a good thing to have. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it's extreme. Unless it's extreme. right? Unless it's extreme. (laughs) You've been talking about this, and and kind of the the, the way the, the research has been written is that this higher communal sexual strength is leading to these outcomes. And the way some of your research has been done with these longitudinal studies where you follow people over a short period of time or you follow them on a daily basis and you see how, say, the previous day communal strength influences the next day relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction, all of these other things that you're talking about. So it, it sounds like this is kind of causing the higher relationship and sexual satisfaction benefits. Could it be the other way around that people who are just generally more satisfied with the relationship are because of that motivated to be more communal sexually? Yeah, absolutely. I think it I think it goes both ways. Like I think if you're very happy in your relationship, you're certainly more motivated to meet your partner's needs. So we have been able to find some evidence like for our for this sort of proposed direction that it's sort of being communal that leads to these outcomes. 
but there's certainly, it certainly goes the other way as well. So one of the things that we've been working on, as I was saying, is to see if we can sort of intervene with information about the benefits. Mm. And then if that changes how people approach their relationships over time, and that would give us more evidence, I think, for this direction that we're sort of purporting. But the vast majority of the work that we've done on this has been correlational. So we're really just looking at the association here. And in some instances, like you said, we've been able to take into account like over time. So we've been able to provide some indication that it definitely goes in that direction where sexual communal strength seems to lead to these outcomes over time. But we certainly don't rule out that there's also something happening in the other direction. Right. It could be bi-directional for sure. It yeah. could be definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I would be surprised if it was. And I mean, it makes total sense to me. Are there any gender differences? You know, how we talk about women being just generally more oriented and, and yeah. socialized to please their partners and meet their partner's needs and all that. Are, are you seeing gender differences in specifically the sexual communal motivation? So yeah, I think the assumption always is that women are going to be higher in this. We actually see that men are higher, but really that's only because in the samples that I study, men are often the higher desire partners. Mm -hmm. And so once we control for just general levels of sexual desire, mm -hmm. we don't see a gender difference in sexual communal strength. Um, I think what might be different is possibly how men and women are communal. So in one study, we were able to ask people like the types of things that they do to be communal partners. And because I think just of this dynamic where in most of the samples, men tend to be more often the higher desire partner, um, that women were more likely to sort of engage in sex when they weren't entirely in the mood, whereas men were more likely to try to figure out specific behaviors that the woman might be interested in, or make sure to sort of spend enough time focusing on like the woman's preferred position or activities. So there might be somewhat of a difference in how this communal strength is expressed. But yeah. on average, men are higher, but it's really mostly accounted for just by their higher desire. Because in general, you're finding that the people who have higher sex drives or interest in sex are also higher in sexual communal strength. Exactly. Okay. When you're measuring communal sexual strengths, what are some some of the items? Like, give us give us three examples of what you're asking for. How motivated are you to meet your partner's sexual needs? Uh, and then a reverse coded item would be like, how easily are you able to put your partner's sexual needs out of your head? We ask questions like, how happy does it make you to meet your partner's sexual needs? So things mm -hmm. like that, really getting at that motivation to be mm -hmm. responsive. But it's still pretty general. It's all like just meeting your partner's needs. You don't ask these more specific questions of like thinking no. of different positions or bringing no. her flowers. No, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but that yeah, that that would be interesting to to think of some of the the different ways that people are expressing this. Yeah, we only have sort of some open-ended responses about this. Mm -hmm. The most common is sort of just being open to engaging in sex when you're not entirely in the mood and then things about like, you know, one of the quotes that I always remember is like I'll have sex in her favorite position even though it's not my favorite position. So mm -hmm. like things like that where you're sort of taking into account that like there might be some differences in what your partner most enjoys compared to what you most enjoy and just sort of taking that into account. Right. Some of the other ones were more explicitly about like communicating about sexual likes and dislikes. So things like, you know, we try to share with each other what we're interested in sexually and we try to be open to meeting those needs, like as long as they don't sort of go outside of some of the boundaries that you've set up early on. So those are the kinds of common things that were, that were coming up. Now, one of your papers, I think it might be even the, one of the most recent ones, looked specifically at consensually non-monogamous couples yes. and how this might play out in, in those couples. So, and obviously that's a topic that's near and dear to me. I had me. a feeling this question was coming. Go ahead, Dr. <laughs> yeah. I could not not ask about that. Of course. That. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this study is a little different than some of your other ones. So, uh, t tell us a little bit about this. What exactly did you do with these couples and what did you find? Yeah, so what we were interested in with these couples is whether being, so these are people that would have sort of multiple ongoing relationships. So we were interested in if you're communal in one of your relationships, could this possibly spill over and have benefits for your other relationship? So in this study, we had people who were in consensually non-monogamous relationships and we had them report on 
two different partners. So we had them report on, for most people, it was a partner they considered to be their primary partner and then another another secondary partner. Mm-hmm. And then for each of those, you asked them how sexually communal they were towards that partner and then how sexually communal they were to, this, to the other partner, right? We actually asked or, it a little differently than we normally do. So we asked them about their perceptions of each partner's sexual communal strength. So how communal... Is your primary partner? How communal oh, is your sexual? Okay. Is your secondary partner? Okay. So it was trying to look at if you have a partner who's really communal, is that we expected it would be beneficial for that relationship, but could it also spill over and have benefits for your other relationship? Gotcha. And the most consistent finding was that people who perceived their primary partner as being higher in sexual communal strength or as being more motivated to fulfill their sexual needs. They felt more satisfied not only in that relationship, but also in their secondary relationship. Mm. So those benefits that they were receiving with their primary partner seem to spill over and also have these benefits for a secondary partner. Wow. So if you're with someone who's a great lover, I mean, for lack of a better term. Giving that, in game. Giving in, yeah, giving in <laughs> yeah. game. That, that will satisfy you enough if the secondary partner isn't as great? Is that too blunt in a way to phrase well, it? Well, that might be one way that this is yeah. playing out. Or Yeah. But I can think of other ways, too. I'm sure Amy can as yeah, well. Just, yeah, that was the one thing that popped in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that could be right. I think, you know, one thing that might be going on is if you have a really communal primary partner, it's possible that sexual communal strength is expressed a little bit differently in the context of a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Usually when we study this in monogamous couples, I think the implication of these measures is that you're motivated to meet a partner's needs and that you're the one that's going to be meeting those needs. But it's possible that in CNM relationships, having a communal partner might mean that they just want to see your needs fulfilled. They're okay if they're not the ones that are always fulfilling those mm-hmm. needs. So that might be part of what's going on. So in, in a relation, if my primary partner is you know uh, very high in sexual communal strength, it might just be that they're sort of more open to these sexual partners fulfilling mm-hmm. certain sexual needs. And that might be one of the reasons why there's benefits also in that secondary relationship. Right. And we do know from CNM and poly research that one of the big reasons why people might want to have an open relationship is so that they can have different kinds of sexual needs met that they might not have a chance to do with a primary partner. Like someone's kinky and their primary partner isn't, or they want a same sex experience and their primary partner is is of the other sex or yeah. you know, something like that. And so it totally makes sense. Do you find, I mean, I know that that study didn't include monogamy participants, but uh, would you think that people who are in open relationships would, on average, be higher, just that baseline? I was just going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask that. Are yeah. higher baseline in sexual communal strength than, than monogamous folks? That's a good question. I haven't actually compared this. I don't think there'd be stark differences on average. I think you might see the same level of variability but I do think that it might be expressed or experienced a bit differently. Mm. So it might also involve sort of this openness of other people fulfilling those needs. Um, but it's possible they might be slightly higher. That's a good question. I could, I could look yeah. at that. Yeah, I was also thinking because I'm sure, as you know, there's some people who are polyamorous who are probably shitty lovers, too. So maybe the, no poly people are shitty. Sure, sure. I don't know what you're I talking know. about. I hate to say that, but right, Amy, there's a possibility that even though there are multiple relationships, they're probably just not great at giving in that relationship. So maybe they wouldn't be as high. They were just the same shitty lovers as monogamous people. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like we're finding a lot of comparable levels of relationship satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, things like this between there has been some work comparing CNM couples and monogamous couples on these types of things. And we see mostly similarities, which makes me think that we'd probably see similarities in sexual communal strength. We just might see sort of some differences in, in what that looks like in these different relationships. Right, right. In this sample, we did sort of see a gender difference for links between like a secondary partner's perceptions of a secondary partner's sexual communal strength and then how that impacted the primary relationship. Mm -hmm. And we saw that for men, when they had a more communal secondary partner, they felt more satisfied in their relationship with their primary partner. But for women, we actually found that when they reported that their secondary partner was more communal, they felt less sexually satisfied in their primary relationship. And so because this is just a one-time cross-sectional study, 
we don't really know what direction this goes in, but it's possible that for these women, there might have been something in their primary relationship sexually that they were missing. So wanting to explore something else sexually, and then they were able to get those needs met in another relationship. So mm. it wasn't all that there was all of this positive spillover. There was this one case for women where we saw that actually having a communal secondary partner was sort of negatively linked with their sexual satisfaction in their relationship. I wonder, with the primary partner. I wonder if that to some extent reflects feeling, oh, the secondary partner is more willing to meet me and satisfy my needs and kind of be there for me and be responsive to my needs than my primary partner and that engendering some level of resentment or kind of dissatisfaction with the primary partner. Like, why aren't yeah. you trying harder, you know, to Yeah, to I think me? I think that could be one possibility. Like, they might be seeking out a secondary relationship to sort of meet a need that's really important to them and then it becomes salient to them that that person can meet it and not their primary partner. Mm. But what was interesting is that we didn't see a negative link with their overall relationship satisfaction. So it could actually be, it would be better to study this sort of over the, over time, like follow people sort of over time as they get into new relationships with other people. But one possibility is that that might be a way that they sustain their relationship satisfaction by sort of fulfilling this thing in their sex life that's not potentially being met in their primary relationship. Right. They meet it elsewhere, so they have sort of these positive impressions of their sex secondary partner, but that allows them to sustain their overall satisfaction with their relationship. Right. This gets just so complicated. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, it, most of your studies have had both partners of the couple, right? You test right. both both partners and then look at their levels. And in the in the poly uh, couples, you only looked at uh, one member of the couple, right? That's right. Just reporting on both of on their both partners. Of them, yeah. yeah, I can't even imagine how complicated it would get with the statistics if you had CNM couples that yeah. you got the data from both individuals about they're two different oh, partners. <laughs> yeah, we have this data right now with Jessica Wood. So she's oh, really? got a couple in a primary relationship who were reporting on themselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And they're also each reporting on a secondary partner if they have one. Oh, boy. And so Jessica, we were, luck with we're that. trying to figure out how to how to deal with this data because it's really complicated. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. I don't, I don't yeah. even. Yeah, Thank it sounds you. like I'll a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Do keep me posted. <laughs> Given what we know about this as of now, is there is there any advice that you could give to people who are currently in in long term relationships or maybe thinking about getting serious with somebody uh, regarding this communal sexual strength? Yeah, I do think sort of being open with your partner about your sort of sexual likes and dislikes and trying to understand what their needs are is important. And of course, with those caveats that, you know, you want to be motivated to meet a partner's sexual needs. We see a lot of benefits of this. But of course, you want to do it with a partner who you feel is going to be responsive in return, not a coercive partner. Right. And you also want to do it while still owning up and, and not neglecting your own needs. All within within reason. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Being giving in game, but within reason. I think that's a good way to put it. Great. <laughs> awesome. I hope Dan Savage doesn't. No, he, he, yeah. he'll, he'll like. I think he likes this because it provides some research evidence for something that he's been saying for quite a long time. Right. So I've talked to him about it and he seemed to he seemed to be be really into it for that reason. He seemed to be good giving in game about you using this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For your reason. Yeah. When are you writing a book, though, Amy? Is what I want to know. This sounds like a bestseller. This whole thing with communal sexual motivation. When's that coming? Oh, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm, really? All right, maybe, maybe one day. Really? You haven't even thought about it? Because all this stuff is very much, you know, a lot of times Dr. Jean looks at me and makes fun of me because I make funny faces because I don't understand what the scientist is saying. But like, right. I understood pretty much 90% of what you were saying, Amy. So it seems like the regular person could learn from this very easily mm -hmm. in a book. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been feeling like I'm still gathering this evidence, especially in terms of like this question around, can people become more communal? Right. Um, so yeah, I think if I maybe start to feel a bit more convinced of that, then then it might be worth sharing more broadly. Maybe we'll five see. five more studies. Five more studies. And then, we <laughs> and, then and then he can think about a book. <laughs> sure. We'll, yeah. we'll write the forward for you. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Amy Muse, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. Tell me, Dr. Jana, that's going to be a bestseller. 
It, yeah, I think it will be. So five more studies, I think, we What's agreed five? on. <laughs> we agreed upon. We're telling her what. <laughs> I, I think we agreed with Amy that five more studies and then it's time for a book. Okay. Well, <laughs> well that just about wraps up episode number 38 of the Science Sex Podcast. You know, but wait, lot- don't go don't go yet. We have some important really? announcements oh, to give people. I have to, I have to go. No, no, no. I, wait, wait, I got a thing. Wait, wait, no? Wait, wait, All right. T- five more minutes. Okay. T- t- seven more minutes. Okay, sure. Whatever. <laughs> what do we got to talk about? First of all, we have a website. We actually have a podcast website. Ooh, mm-hmm. we fancy now. We fancy. And do we have a website address? Like, how do, how <laughs> yes. do people find you, it? I think you should, you should tell them that. <laughs> it's the scienceofsexpodcast.com, right? Scienceofsexpodcast.com. That makes sense since that's yeah, I mean, the name of the show. I mean, it does kind of make sense. Yeah. So cool. that's where, from now on, that's where you'll be able to find all the episodes, uh, the links to the studies that we mm. discuss, so all the stuff that we used to post on Dr. Jana will now go on the scienceofsexpodcast.com. That's right. Yes. Now, you're, you're obviously spending a lot of time on this podcast and the website, but is there <sighs> going to be time for Dr. Jana live shows out there? <laughs> I do. I do. So the next event that we have is on September 13th, and it's going to be one of those sex science social mm-hmm. that has the topic of the gender spectrum from a cross-cultural perspective. It's talking about the gender spectrum. There are more than just Male, males female. and females, okay. right? Something that we've been talking quite a bit lately in our in our culture, uh, but giving it a cross-cultural perspective because there are these so-called third genders or even fourth genders in some non-Western cultures. And there's now a little bit of research on that over the last kind of uh, decade or so. There's been more and more systematic research. And one of the things that I did this summer was go to a conference in Madrid where there was a whole symposium on third genders in uh, non-Western cultures. And I thought that it would be really interesting to kind of bring that perspective to New York City. (laughs) So we actually have a guest, Dr. Matthew Steef, who has done some of this research on uh, third genders in a non-Western culture, specifically the hijra in India. Hmm. And yeah, so he's going to be there and I hope many of you are going to be there. If you're in New York City, you can be there in person. It happens at the Hacienda Villa, which is a sex positive intentional community in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And if you can't be there in person, you can always watch the live stream on Facebook and you can get your tickets. The event is live and you can get your tickets through Eventbrite. So just go to Eventbrite and and type in sex and social, the gender spectrum or go to drjana.com and uh, you will uh, find a link to that event as well. Cool. Well, you sound too yeah. busy to be doing anything else, right? That's no, it. no, no. Oh. There's more. There's, oh, there's more. more. Okay. Can, can I tell you about one more thing? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so two days before that, on the 11th of September, I will be participating at another event as the resident sex educator. Wow. <laughs> uh, at, at this event called Touchpoint Town Hall, which is something that has been going on uh, for quite some time. And it's a t- kind of a town hall thing where a lot of people show up and then share experiences on a particular topic. They're not always sexual, but they are very often about love and relationships and, and sexuality. And it's an opportunity for people to learn from one another through these different stories that people have and and uh, the kinds of emotions and thoughts and, and feelings that telling these stories or hearing these stories will elicit in some of the other people. Wow. And it's a hugely popular uh, event and, and concept that uh, uh, Jared Weiss has been running for quite some time. And I actually told a story a couple of months ago before I left for my summer travels. I was there as a, as a kind of a participant who told a story about kind of open relationships. That and makes sense. Which yeah. obviously makes mm-hmm. sense. <laughs> and we kind of talked about how I could potentially get involved a little more in that event and we decided that we're going to give this uh, a try where I kind of am there as the as I said resident sex educator who might jump in if there is an opportunity to explain a term or a concept or there's a misconception or a myth that gets thrown in or around and then I, I have a chance to correct that so so that there is somebody as an expert who um, can provide some sort of sex and relationship education in addition to the shared experiences that uh, come from the participants themselves. That is also in New York City at the Assemblage, which is kind of this co-working uh, space in um, 
the nomad area of Manhattan. And there's also a podcast that is being recorded. Are you cheating on me? No, 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 no. I'm not cheating on you. Because I know you believe in open relationships. I don't believe in (laughs) podcast open relationships. What do you mean you don't? (laughs) I can't be on another podcast? Is that what you're saying? You're my partner. (laughs) I'm still your partner. No, but they do record a podcast of the events. So people who can be present in New York can listen to that. All right. Well, if Dr. Jenna, I, I just hope you just carve up enough time for me I always for the next make episode for you okay. yes the, oh next episode yes <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about the next episode before we go yes so next week on the show we're going to have Dr. James Moran from Tulane University who's going to talk to us about his new study on Snapchat oh yeah okay technology new technology do you use Snapchat I have it I, yeah. I think I might have aged out of Snapchat <laughs> I think a lot of the younger people do it, mm-hmm. but I have it on my phone. Yeah, that's one that I just decided that I wasn't going to do. I never downloaded it, never made a profile. I was like, no, no, this oh. is one that I'm not going to use. All right. Well, hopefully Dr. James Moran can maybe change your mind. Maybe. maybe. I'm, I'm open to having my mind changed. <laughs> Dr. Jana, I'm so happy to see you again. Yay, Ready for another season of the Science of Sex. I'm super excited about the new season. Yeah. So and remember, you, we always like to say, if you listen to us wherever you listen to us, Throw us a comment. Let us know what you think of the show. Mm-hmm. Rate and review all that jazz. Tell a friend. All that. Talk to us. Give us questions because we do come back every now and then and do a sex question. Sex. Come on, say it. Sex, sex question palooza. Sex, yes. Sex question palooza. Yes. <laughs> Where we answer all listeners' questions. So please find a way, whether it's uh, emailing us through the science of sex podcast.com or on Twitter or on Facebook or our individual emails or, and Facebook and Twitter accounts, cool. Dr. Jana and Joe Partavilla. Thank you very much, Dr. Jana. It's very sweet to give me a little pop mm-hmm. there at the end. Mm-hmm. So next week we'll have uh, Dr. Moran and we'll find out whether Dr. Jana has two husbands and two children. <laughs> Probably not yet. Not but, yet? You know, you know, this is in a way putting the intention and feelers out into the universe. Oh, uh, did you read The Secret <laughs> Over Vacation or something? No. I am putting it out in at least the, 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 the planet yeah. universe. Uh, and, and so if there are any two men who are hot yep. and... Uh, Virile, obviously, because... Yes, because we need to be making babies, babies here. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And passionate and uh, smart and... You know what, Dr. Shana? I think you come across a little desperate. <laughs> Why don't we... I'll stop you there so we can get out of here, all right? I'm not desperate, no, Joe. I know I'm that. Not I'm just saying you sound I'd be perfectly. Listen, no, but I think this is important. Okay. I'm still pretty sure that I would be perfectly happy if I never end up having the two husbands and, and the two the babies, two babies yeah. from each of the the, the husbands uh, for the rest of my life. But you know, if something like that happens, I would be open. Put to yourself it. out there. Okay. Put yourself okay. out there. All right. Is cool. that better? Is yeah, that a little less that's, desperate? That's fine. Just okay, good. Let me know if anything changes next week. All right. <laughs> I will. See you next time. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.